Hey everyone, it's Ramon and welcome to the Human Optimization Podcast, science-based tools to optimize your physiology, master your mind, and unlock your potential. Now before we get into the episode, a quick word from our sponsor, Brain First, earth-grown, evidence-based nutrition. One of the products that I love and I take every workday to fire up my brain and get laser-like focus and interflow quickly is Genius Mode. Now, it took me years of research and testing to formulate Genius Mode for Brain First because I was sick of having dozens of bottles and powders to have to mix together all the different ingredients to give me the effect that I wanted. So Genius Mode has the best science-backed ingredients for peak mental performance in meaningful doses supported by experimental data. I personally take it shortly after I wake up and the focus and the drive and the motivation and the mental clarity lasts me all day. Now to get Genius Mode, use code RAMON for 10% off in addition to any other subscription discounts that you get on the BrainFirst website. Just head to mybrainfirst.com and you'll see a bunch of reviews from other people who are absolutely loving this product. mybrainfirst.com, code RAMON for 10% off and get your brain an instant upgrade. Let's get into the episode. Enjoy my friends. In this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Loretta Bruning, Professor Emerita of Management at California State U and author of The Science of Positivity, Habits of a Happy Brain and Tame Your Anxiety. Loretta, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Great to see you again. You too. So uh, we're going to be talking about happiness and the happy brain, uh, maybe the unhappy brain <laughs> in this episode. Uh, and for our listeners, uh, Loretta has a very unique approach to happiness that I feel fits really well with our applied neuroscience philosophy uh, and is uh, different than the traditional views of happiness like the the hedonic and the eudaimonic approaches that we often hear about, uh, but it also doesn't work in opposition to them either. Loretta, for our listeners who don't yet know you, I'd love for you to share why and how you got into this field. Sure. So I was a professor of management for 25 years and I had a social science background, and I was always interested in psychology. And I studied, uh, followed the various trends that came and went in, in psychology. And I think for the same reason as many people that I grew up in an unhappy environment. And so I was interested in, you know, why, what makes people happy and unhappy. But um, because it wasn't my academic specialty, I was free to um, absorb what felt true to me rather than being committed to one academic paradigm and having to um, rebuke the others as so many academics tend to do. So then I, um, I had a sort of a crisis of confidence in the social science model of motivation because it seemed to me that my students were not very motivated and my children were not very motivated, and the children of other professors were not very motivated. So that's what sparked me to study motivation from the animal brain perspective and to take early retirement and do my own work. I think uh, let's, let's get something out of the way. I know a lot of <laughs> our listeners are going to be thinking, all right, we've got another episode on happiness uh, Ramon, you've spoken about happiness a number of different times. You've had a number of guests talking about happiness. There seem to be all these, diff these different perspectives. Uh, and, and I think that's because like it's, it's 
been difficult to conceptualize what happiness is and what, you know, what happiness isn't. So what's your take on this? What is happiness? So happiness is a chemical that our brain releases for an evolutionary reason, which is a good feeling motivates you to step towards something that's good for the survival of your genes. So we are not consciously trying to promote the survival of our genes. And that's how the animal brain works is it doesn't take conscious intent. Is that something that feels good? You're like, wow, I want more of that. So you repeat whatever behavior stimulated that chemical. And there are different happy chemicals, and that motivates us to repeat different behaviors to stimulate each of them. I love that. Uh, it's something that uh, I know um, for our listeners and uh, particularly for our students at the Institute as well, I often talk about, you know, well, what happened, what was going on, uh, evolutionarily speaking, to see, well, what are the, what are the um, primary drivers? What are the, why do these chemicals exist? What's going on in the brain? How does that work when we bring this into the modern world and we now have the notifications and the distractions and the pressures that we put on ourselves and, and uh, this sort of constant um, demand for our attention? How does, that how does this all work in the real world when we have all this stuff going on and perhaps we're trying to maybe, maybe we need to simplify it a little bit. Let's talk about this. I'm not against simplifying, but um, the whole paradigm that our unhappiness is society's fault is the social science paradigm that everyone has been indoctrinated in. And all of our information is filtered through that paradigm. So one tends to overlook the alternative view, which is that life was always frustrating. Animals and early humans had ups and downs and frustrations. And that's the way our brain works. And our lives are actually in many ways simpler. I'll just give you a simple example. I'm not going to freeze in the winter if I don't grow enough food in the summer. I don't have to like every day when I eat, look at the store, the amount of rice that I have stored and know that I might starve to death before the next harvest season. And I might freeze to death in the winter if I don't collect enough um, firewood. And I, my children might get eaten by predators if I go outside with them. So um, it took a lot of knowledge to uh, survive in the past. And it takes a different set of knowledge today. Um, so we have the same operating system, which is happy chemicals when you step toward something that meets a need and unhappy chemicals that motivate you to step back from something that's either a threat or an obstacle to meeting a need. Do you think that the way that we met the challenges that we had back then led to us having more happy chemicals or do you think there's no difference? It's, it's hard to say because then that also leads to the, the idea that Joe down the street has more happy chemicals than I do. So this whole social comparison is very central to the mammal brain. So first, um, let's use a couple of simple examples. 
if I am thirsty and I'm walking in a primeval desert and I see an oasis in the distance, I'm ecstatic. But in the modern world, if I have unlimited running hot water, doesn't make me slight, slightest bit happy. The fact that I can bathe every day doesn't make me happy. But if I couldn't bathe every day, then I'd be upset, or if I had to bathe in cold water. So um, our brain habituates to the rewards we have, and it takes new and improved. So if my ancestor found a fabulous berry tree, they would be ecstatic. But then if they woke up next to the same berry tree every day, then it wouldn't make them happy anymore. So there's always this sort of treadmill nature to happiness. Now, the idea of comparison, that somebody else has it easier, um, this is part of that um, inevitable mammalian uh, impulse to compare yourself to others. Because in the animal world, and people hopefully have seen nature videos, and David Attenborough's are really good on this topic, that if I'm near a stronger individual and I reach for food, they may bite me. And I could die from that bite. So I'm always comparing myself to others before I assert myself. And it's this constant social comparison, which is a very big driver of our ups and downs once our need for food and water are met. Mm, mm. Food and water and sex. (laughs) (laughs) Although, let me say that the social comparison is a big part of the sex thing. So that's another subject that we could get into. Yeah, yeah. So what are some of the things that you have noticed, particularly during this last period of time when many of us, uh, you know, we're we're self-isolated, there have been some really interesting things going on, some really interesting behaviors. What are some of the things that you've noticed with regards to the concepts that you're talking about here? Well, one interesting thing, you know, when um, people talk about as you get older, you don't change, you just become more intensely who you were. And I sort of feel that way about quarantine, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that you don't change, you just, you just sort of go into more of what you already were. And there's a, a good reason for that, which is that the neural pathways that we've myelinated from past experience are so efficient that we use them effortlessly and new neural pathways are very hard to activate. So everyone, you know, the more you rely on your old neural pathways, the more cognitive capacity you have left over to maybe be alert for predators. So we're sort of being alert for predators by running on automatic, whatever the automatic is for that individual. Oh, and the funny thing for me is that my, com- like we all have our comfort of choice. So my comfort of choice is travel, oh. <laughs> which is like not, not a, a, a possibility. So my second one is writing books. I'm like spending all my time writing books and my fingers are getting stiff. <laughs> so I keep telling myself, I got to do other things. I got to do other things. So all I can think of doing is watching travel videos, <laughs> but um, not all, but I mean, that's, you know, my big excitement. 
So then I'm like debating, like, would travel videos make me happier or unhappy? So yeah. I'm, I'm still debating that. Oh, you know, uh, so what? sometimes they do, sometimes they don't, or? I haven't done it yet because oh, I right. say okay. to myself, because I know the treadmill nature of the brain, yep. I'm trying to save it. Like someday if I'm really unhappy, I'll have it available for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Actually, um, last time we spoke, uh, I asked you the question of what's the purpose of unhappiness? And I think this is a, a great point at which to introduce that because we have this idea of happiness. Okay, we understand what that's about. The, what's the purpose of unhappiness? Sure. Um, so unhappiness we could think of as a chemical called cortisol, which many people have heard of as the stress chemical. And it gives you a horrible death threat feeling which is often um, perceived of as akin to when an animal sees a predator. Uh, but in the human world, excuse me, and also in the animal world, disappointment triggers cortisol. Hunger triggers cortisol because think about it from a baby's perspective. When a baby is hungry, it can't get food on its own. So it surges with cortisol and that brings help. So from the core of our earliest neural pathways, that impulse to explode with cortisol when you can't meet your needs is like the, the foundational circuit in our brain. And when you sort of explode with cortisol, you get help. And that wires you to, to think that's a thing, you know? And then with maturity, you build confidence in your own ability to meet your own needs but needless to say, we can't do it every minute of every day. So some, sometimes we want help. Sometimes we're just frustrated and give up because nothing we do works. And a simple example of that is imagine if you're a lion and you're chasing a gazelle and you see the gazelle get away and the lion is starving. And David Attenborough, again, nature video is really good at this. They make you feel sorry for the lion because you've watched this show for like 55 minutes and the lion hasn't gotten anything. So that lion wants that gazelle so much. But if you keep chasing the gazelle that got away, you're even worse off. So disappointment has to feel so bad that it motivates you to give up rather than investing your energy in hopeless pursuits. And that's really, I think, the... the, the the inner dialogue of daily life is like, do, would I rather just give up or um, keep chasing the gazelle that got away? And to put that in a more positive framework is when you give up, it frees your energy to target a different gazelle. And in other words, to invest your energy in a more promising prospect. So let's, uh, maybe let's talk about some of these happy chemicals. Uh, what are they? What's what's the um, primary purpose? And then maybe we can dive into some of the things that we can do to uh, increase our levels of happiness that's based on uh, these uh, neurochemicals. Sure. So the chemicals that I focus on are dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin, and endorphin. So dopamine is the most basic one, and dopamine is the expectation of a reward. So what I mentioned before is if you see an oasis in the distance and you're dying of thirst, that's a huge reward. 
So you get a huge dopamine surge and that releases your reserve tank of energy. And the way I say it is that in the state of nature, you had to seek all the time in order to avoid um, starving to death and dopamine fit made it feel good. So our brain has evolved to seek. And in the modern world where your belly is full and your needs are met more easily, then we have to stimulate that dopamine feeling in other ways because we still crave it. And just looking for food all the time wouldn't be good for us. So we have to sort of reorient ourselves or else just look for food all the time. <laughs> so challenges. And actually, it's something that uh, I was thinking about early when we were discussing the differences between life 100,000 years ago and today. I kept thinking, well, this all really seems about challenge, seeking out some, or overcoming some sort of challenge or seeking out some kind of challenge and meeting a need. So what is the so now that we don't have to uh, worry about food so much, well, most of us uh, don't have to worry about food so much and water and basic needs, what are some of the challenges that uh, we should be seeking out? Hmm. So first, it's important to know, as I said, that the brain habituates to the rewards it has. So whatever challenge you look for, once you get it, then it sort of loses its cachet, which is why a, a well-known modern example is the person that says, I want to run a marathon. While you're training for the marathon, you feel great because you have a goal. And that's what makes us feel good is having a goal. And it only feels good if you actually perceive yourself approaching the goal. And so you get up, you train for the marathon every day. And long story short, after you run the marathon, a few days later, the good feeling is gone. And what do you do? So a lot of people plan to run another marathon. So whatever that individual's perception of goal is, it, it goes into this treadmill thing. But another thing, when I said uh, to meet a need, a lot of people have heard about dopamine in the context of uh, addiction, and they may be thinking, well, that doesn't meet needs. And so the important thing is that our main neural pathways are myelinated by adolescence. And so it's whatever met your needs in adolescence, as an adolescent defines their needs, is what established the goals that really get you going today. And then when that gets you into trouble, then you have to revise and revise and revise. But it's hard mm. to revise. Mm. I once had someone say to me, don't you have enough? Can't you just be satisfied with what you've got? And he was having a got me. Mm -mm. I was just going to ask you that. Was it a sincere question or were they? <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it was absolutely he was having, having a go at me. But what about this idea? Let's say it was a genuine question. Can't you just be satisfied with what you have? I mean, to me, it just doesn't, uh, it doesn't make sense. And even the, I don't think it's even the right question. But what are your thoughts on, on this? I just had the most similar experience. I was with someone who was even sort of in a little bit of a position of authority in this moment and said, well, I can achieve that inner state anytime I want without any effort or activity. And people may call this enlightenment. They may think of it as an ecstatic state. And um, 
in order to answer that, um, let's go into a different happy chemical, which is serotonin. And this is the perception of being in the one-up position. Now, um, in the animal world, if you are stronger and more muscular, you are going to get more food and mating opportunity, and that is going to spread your genes. And natural selection built a brain that rewards you with a good feeling when you get the one-up position. So we all seek serotonin, and it's not just those bad guys. So if a, this person who was speaking to you or the person who was speaking to me or anyone who perceives themselves as being more skilled at achieving a higher mental state, that stimulates their serotonin. So hooray for them. They found a nonviolent way of stimulating their serotonin by feeling superior, which is basically what people do, but they're still not stimulating their dopamine. <laughs> That's what I would say. Mm-hmm. I, I love how you keep bringing this back to the uh, neurochemistry because it makes so much sense. I, I just, I really love this perspective. Let's, uh, let's talk about some of the other things that we can do. Like, let's get really practical here because I know a lot of our listeners are like, okay, we've got a good idea of what happiness is and, and what unhappiness is. I kind of get this idea that, you know, I need to meet needs and um, I need to have challenges and all these sorts of things. What are some practical things that I can do? Maybe let's start off with some easy, simple day-to-day things that, that people might not even think about but could be um, making us more happy. Sure. Um, let's do one for each of the happy chemicals. And let's start with um, examples that one can do without leaving home in case one is listening to this <laughs> at a time when one can't leave home. Yeah. Um, so dopamine. So I always say for dopamine is um, a short-term goal, a long-term goal, and a middle-term goal because we need to see ourselves approaching the reward in order to get it. And because we don't control the world, you can't guarantee that you're going to make progress on all of your goals every day. But when one is blocked, you can focus on another if you have a few different goals. And you have to be sort of diligent about... um, So what what I'd say is... um, you uh, give yourself rewards that you have control over. So simple example is if you're going to have dessert every night and you're going to watch a movie every night, don't give yourself, don't let yourself have the reward unless you do the whatever thing it is. And if you have a hard time getting going, give yourself 15 minutes. I'm going to do this thing for 15 minutes and then I'm going to give myself that certain reward. And I also say to... um, do your hardest challenge first thing in the morning because that's when you have more energy. And then you get this great shot of dopamine. It's like, wow, I tackled something really difficult and that helps you move on. And later in the day, if you find something really difficult, save it till the next morning and then you ease your cortisol so you don't have this constant endless like, oh, I'm never reaching my goals. Like I've done enough today and I'm going to have a nice dopamine spurt in the morning. Oh, so the other thing is whatever triggered my dopamine when I was young is going to trigger it more easily today. So if we just endlessly repeat ourselves, that's not the greatest thing for so many reasons. 
But when you're aware of your early dopamine circuits, it helps you orient this in a healthier way. So the simple example is, um, like I talked about, I, um, when I was young, planning travel was actually my escape. So I understand now oh, when I can't travel, I have a loss of my familiar escape. So everybody can, like some people, their early circuits were all about food. Other people, their early circuits were all about partying. Whatever were your early rewards, just being aware of them helps you build on that foundation in a healthier and more accessible direction. So let's move on to serotonin. Oh, no, let's move on to oxytocin. So oxytocin is um, acceptance and belonging it's social trust. So in the animal world, when you're with a herd, you're safer from predators. And when animals are with their herd, they can lower their guard because the burden of vigilance is distributed across many eyes and ears. So this is our natural impulse to find a group, and that allows us to feel safer. But it's frankly, it's quite a selfish impulse. It's like, I want to be in the center of the herd because then I'm not going to get eaten. And it's important to know that because otherwise what we're being fed these days is this idealized notion of, you know, here are my pals and they would lay down their life for me. And when you think that way, then you're disappointed <laughs> with the actual people in the real world, <laughs> um, including the people you may be shut in with. <laughs> so, so um, instead, it helps to understand uh, I always look for them the perspective, not of a herd animal, but from a primate, which is the um, wildlife videos that show monkeys grooming each other. So if I groom your fur, I'm expecting something in exchange. First, when I groom your fur, if I find a bug, I get to eat it. I hope you might groom my fur back. And if you don't, Maybe when reproductive season comes around, you'll remember me. Or maybe when a predator attacks, you will defend me. Or maybe when I'm attacked by other members of this group and I scream for help, you may come and defend me. But sometimes I'm disappointed. And after I've groomed you a lot, you may do nothing for me. And in the animal world, that happens all the time. And that triggers cortisol, the survival threat feeling. And that gives me a bad feeling about you. And I need that bad feeling to motivate me to groom someone else. Now, um, that's not good for marriage, <laughs> um, not good for relationship, it's not good for quarantine. <laughs> but when you understand that all of this is happening, then you can rebuild trust and understand that um, betrayed trust past disappointments are real neural pathways and you can build new neural pathways with new acts of trust and it takes a lot of small acts of trust to build the new pathways because once we're past our teen years, years it takes a lot of repetition to build a new pathway. Mm. If I can just go back to the uh, dopamine for a moment, um, when you were talking about the teen years, one of the things that and it has absolutely been true in my life, which is the need for variety. 
And early on, it used to be variety of uh, different uh, emotional states. Um, so I did a lot of um, and have done a lot of extreme sports. Um, I, I need a lot of variety in my day and I manage it better now. I, I had some destructive ways of meeting those needs when I was younger. I'm, I have much more um, fulfilling and meaningful ways of doing that now. But one of the things, and I know that this will apply to um, many of our listeners, when you have a need for that variety and variation, yet you have work or a job that is quite consistent and the same from one day to the next. One of the ways that I overcome that is to try and make variety or find variety in the mundane, if you will. Are, are there other ways of, of being able to introduce more variety and more novelty to stimulate that dopamine in a, uh, an existence, but particularly now during this time when, <laughs> when everything seems like it's the same from one day to the next? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so first to understand why variety is so important. Um, I don't know if, if people remember one of the first video games that existed was Oregon Trail, which was pioneers who had to walk from the U.S. Midwest to the U.S. West Coast. And maybe for a whole month, you had nothing to eat but beef jerky. And then you'd run out of that. And like for a whole month, you had nothing to eat but biscuits. And then you would get to the place where you could find fruit. And, but for a month, you had nothing to eat but fruit. And then you got to some river with fish. And then you had nothing to eat but fish. So whatever resource you already have, it quickly stops meeting a need. And your brain rewards you for finding something different. So your dopamine habituates to what you already have. So that's why we need to, to build variety into our daily lives. And um, many people are cooking in quarantine. Um, and of course, if you cook every day, that's not in and of itself variety, but cooking something different is a way to get variety when you don't have a lot of other things. But even, you know, the frustration people have about, um, uh, I've lost my schedule. But even losing your schedule is a way to bring variety into your life to say, I'm going to try having lunch first thing in the morning and then eating breakfast food at night or something. You know, it is a way to get variety. But one other thing I want to mention when you talk about this when you were young, variety is a little different from distraction. So distraction is yet another tool that has actual value. So... Um, if you're being followed by a predator, um, distraction doesn't save your life. But if you have imagined the predator, and then you, instead of thinking about the predator, you think about something else, then that saves your life from your brain's perspective because the predator went away as soon as you stopped thinking about it. So this is a trick that young, young people figure out. It's like, oh, if I focus on X, then I stop worrying about Y. And video games are quite a popular thing. But when you mentioned extreme sports or um, the kind of athletics where you are always meeting a new goal, which gives you a sense of accomplishment, which helps you 
um, reduce the frustration of being in the one down position, which is inevitably part of life because you can't be king of the world. And young people do need to deal with that frustration because it is part of life. So this is um, something that we also are um, trying to do today. So how do you distract yourself? Well, it's not that easy because you can sit and watch television, but that just triggers all of these maybe one down or whatever loops you're already in. Mm. Mm. Uh, yeah, I'm sure uh, when I was younger, a very big part of it was to uh, regulate. The variety was to regulate my own emotions. Distraction rings true for me. It's like, absolutely, there was something that I didn't want to address or something I didn't want to deal with or had to figure out. So this was a great way of, of regulating that whole thing. Um, yes, yes, people do it because it works. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, the next uh, brain chemical, what's the, the next one? Are we um, serotonin? Um, yeah, serotonin, yes. So, and this is the tough one. So serotonin is to have that one-up feeling. And it's often considered rude. Um, and that's why a toddler has to learn not to grab toys from others. So what would be a way to stimulate the one down, the, I'm sorry, the one up feeling by, without stealing toys from others? That's complicated enough. But in addition, you may go through life with the perception that other people are stealing toys from you. And so you're exaggerating the problem by one downing yourself with your own neural pathways. So it's not really easy to give yourself the one-up position, but the best thing you could do is to stop one downing yourself by recognizing that you're doing it to yourself and you have the power to stop. So why are you doing it? Because of whatever made you feel one down in your teen years because that's when we have a lot of myelin. And myelin is the substance that paves your neural pathways and makes the superhighways of your brain. So that's one thing you know we could do during this quarantine is interview other people about their teen years. And it's so fascinating to see that one person was worried about X and felt put down by this. And it's like, oh, that doesn't bother me at all. But this bothers me. And the other person, oh, that doesn't really bother me. And you see that the things that you bother you are just a replay of what was going on when you were young. And that helps you sort of realize that you've created the cortisol and the threatened feeling yourself. And then you realize when it's an illusion, you give yourself permission to sort of put yourself in the one-up position in a more sophisticated way, which means not putting other people down. So you don't have to sneer at others or hate them or scoff at them, but you, you, your inner mammal still wants to feel like, I'm the man, I got it going on. So my uh, uh, nephew has just turned three and he now has a little brother who is um, about <laughs> a week old. And yeah. this is going to be really interesting how the, how this is going to go. So when you mentioned about you know how to manage this with uh, toddlers, I'm I'm super curious about um, like how do you manage that? Uh, are are there ways of of 
managing this with um, you know small children when they don't have the development to be able to approach this in a more kind of deliberate way where they can regulate themselves and, and all the rest of it? Yeah, yeah. Well, there's two things um, that we've already talked about. So one of them is distraction, that all the experts tell you that when this child is upset about the competition, that you distract them with something. And ideally not distract them with junk food, which is ever so effective. But, you know, everything that we do is like people try to buy long-term peace in a way that is complex. Now, the other one is people try to sell the three-year-old on the idea of like, oh, you're the big brother. So Mm -hmm. here, why don't you get a blanket and cover the baby because now you're the big brother, which also is nice. But then again, like in the long run, we all have these, you know, uh, complexes that, you know, these old pathways is like, well, maybe when you're the big brother, you expect to be the god forever, but you're still going to get dethroned at one moment or another. So there's no simple solution to that? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I forgot I was going to say that. I forgot. Yes, exactly. So I I wasn't actually expecting that there was going to be a simple solution, but I thought I'd I'd give it a shot. (laughs) Those are simple solutions that work in the short run. And then in the long run, there is no simple guaranteed way to have effortless happiness every minute. And the whole point of this is that these chemicals, I should have said that in the beginning, right? These chemicals do not evolve to be on all the time. That's the flaw in the medical model, that it's given people the illusion that you should have this effortless happiness every moment. And if you don't, then it's society's fault, it's the healthcare system's fault, that something's wrong with you. And it's just not the case. The chemicals have an explicit purpose for an explicit moment, and then they're off and you have to turn them on again. And that's the challenge of life. I think that model has certainly influenced the uh, the personal development and self-help space where everything's like happy, 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 positivity, positivity, can't be negative, can't say something bad, da, da, da. Come on, guys, give me a break, <laughs> really? <laughs> and uh, so, sorry, parents. Yes. Um, it, there is no simple solution. That's funny, but you, you know what, though? But then the, the other side of that coin is the therapeutic community is so, in my, in my subcontext, is obsessed with trauma. Yeah. And everything is negative. And everybody is a victim of their suffering. And the world is bad. And society is bad. And they have nothing positive to say. So both of these are the challenge, I guess, that people are trying to navigate. Mm-hmm. Loretta, I love speaking with you. Um, we are coming to the end of the show, unfortunately. So uh, any, any final thoughts um, for our listeners? Well, we didn't do endorphins, so let's do that very quickly. Oh, okay. yes, endorphins, of course. So, um, endorphin has a fan club because it was the first one of these happy chemicals that was discovered and researched, but it's widely misunderstood. Some people use it as a synonym for all happy chemicals and other people use adrenaline as the synonym for all happy chemicals, which is another whole subject that we don't have time for. But uh, endorphin is actually the body's natural opioid. And in fact, the word means morphine, endogenous morphine. And it is stimulated in animals when they're injured, when they're in pain. 
And so when you see in a nature video that an animal has a lion hanging from its flesh and it's in so much pain, but it's still able to run at top speed because endorphin masks pain for 20 minutes and that enables an animal to save its life. And after that, it either hides to protect its injuries or it's dead. So our, we are not designed to be um, on endorphin all the time. And we are not designed to seek it. We're designed to seek the other three, but just to have endorphin in case of emergency. But because it feels so good, because it creates a euphoria that masks pain, people are tempted to seek it. So they inflict pain on themselves, which is a terrible idea. And I always want to get in that I am totally not advocating doing anything that inflicts pain on you to feel good. Mm. Um, but if people want to know how to stimulate it, then anyway. So I always say that laughing stimulates a little bit and a little bit is enough. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm definitely an endorphin junkie. Uh, <laughs> from um, it's probably one of the main reasons why I'm so consistent with uh, training and working out is because it just afterwards I just feel really, really good. The mental clarity, the euphoria, uh, everything. But you don't. Do you have to exercise to the point of pain? Is the... mm, well, I think um, not pain in the sense that most people would say pain. Like I certainly push myself, um, but I'm not pushing myself to the point of breaking. Uh, it's uncomfortable, but it's not painful. Okay, well, as long as you're not doing any kind of damage that creates um, injury. Yeah, no, no, definitely. My, my priority is to remain injury-free uh, because, of course, if I'm injured, I can't train. So, yes, any, any um, final thoughts? Anything that you wanted to leave our uh, listeners with? Um, uh, can I mention my website? I was going so, to. Um, yeah, absolutely. That, that was coming. <laughs> yeah, it's coming. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, well, then, if, it, if that was coming, then other thoughts. Well, let's just, um, I guess, have a, a short thing about parenting and addiction. Well, my website has a page on parenting and a page on addiction. But... Um, we have power over our brains. Our, our, our superhighways in our brains are built from early experience, and children learn more from what you do than what you say. So if you model the behaviors you want them to learn, and if you reward them for small steps, tiny steps, and don't give them the reward unless they take the step, then... Um, for addiction. So you can build new pathways to turn on your happy chemicals in new ways instead of repeating the old comfort patterns. But again, it takes small steps repeated a lot. So you have to um, give yourself a reward for taking a small step, find a reward that's healthier than your old reward, and just give yourself a small reward for a small step, but repeat it often. Uh, and you have um, some more resources on your website that people can uh, check out on these things in particular? Yes. So my website is innermammalinstitute.org, innermammalinstitute.org. And there's information about my books and then every other possible form of information. So I have videos on this that are sort of fun that you could watch with kids and um, even animation that kids can watch and um, infographics and podcasts and cute animal pictures and lots to read. 
Lovely. Guys, uh, Habits of a Happy Brain, you need to get this book. Uh, it will teach you about yourself. It really, like that, that's the that's the uh, the only thing I really have to say. There's there's so much uh, in here that um, will really give you some insights into yourself and how you operate, and of course to help you improve the quality uh, of your life. So uh, that's on the website as well. Uh, again, Loretta, I, I really love speaking with you. I can't wait to get you back on the show so we can talk about uh, your new book, Tame Your Anxiety. Um, So for those of our listeners who are interested in this topic, I think it's um, also very uh, relevant at the moment. There's a lot of people experiencing anxiety. Uh, Keep an eye out for that. And uh, thank you very much for being on the show. Sure. Thanks so much for having me. So that's it for this episode. If you want to support the show, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, drop a five-star review. And of course, you can connect with me on social with the links in the description. Thanks for tuning in. Talk to you soon.